this morning, um, I just got a message that I've called fully human. Fully human. Imago Dei. And um, Imago, um, Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. It's all just look at Kayleen right now. Yeah, while well, you're turning off your own phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What we should do if your phone rings, we should make you come up here and you have to answer it and put on speaker. <laughs> I've got to cheat my phone now. <laughs> hey, it's 11-11. Ooh. When the righteous extend their blessing to the city, it's exalted. Proverbs 11.11, 11. yeah. Come on, so anyway, that's a sidetrack. So today's message is about, it's called Fully Human, made in the image of God. And, and really the thought that I want to deposit today is just that we're made in the image of God and, and that we're called to be fully human, to be called fully human. And, and so I'm not going to go as deep into some thoughts as I probably would like, but, but my invitation to you this morning is to be challenged, to, to, um, to think about the truth. It's a truth that you've been made in the image of God, and you, are, uh, you have a call to be fully human. It's a truth. You'll be made in the image of God, and you've been called to be fully human. And so hopefully this morning I'm going to put some language around that to get some wheels rolling that, that you'll actually like lean into this. And what does it mean for me to be made in the image of God? What does it mean for me to be fully human? And who knows um, that we were, we were created with five senses that help us make sense of our surrounding, make us understand or comprehend our surrounding. Senses that are are stimulated in, in different ways collectively or, or through different combinations that, that allow us to perceive the created world we're in. You know, and, and that's our sight, our hearing, our smell, our taste, and our touch. And those five senses allow us to comprehend this creation we're in. And I watched this video recently um, of a, a guy who was um, blind. Um, born blind, so he was blind from birth, and uh, they were interviewing him, and they asked him this great question, do you visualize things in your mind? Now, how I ended up watching this video is I googled, do blind people dream in pictures? Don't ask why I was wondering that, but, but so I came up, and they asked him, do you visualize things in your mind? And he said that I can imagine, I can imagine, but I cannot visualize. I can imagine, but I cannot visualize. And so if you named an item to him, what he would do is he would recall the shape and the texture of it uh, and the temperature because how it, how it felt directly related to, uh, he, he perceived it basically on how he touched it and how he, how he, how he perceived it through his hands because his eyes were his, his hands were his eyes. And um, when they asked him to describe a banana, he could name the shape, he could name the texture. And he, and he makes this comment that um, apparently it's yellow, he's been told. But for him, that, that sort of information is irrelevant because only the shape of it and the texture of it meant something to him. And then they asked him about a car. And he said, 
I can't hold an entire car in my hands. And so he only imagined individual parts of a car. You know, he could, that's a side mirror. He could, he could feel around that. That was a door. And when they got him to draw a picture of how he imagined a car to look like, he drew mainly disconnected shapes and parts. He could not imagine the car in its wholeness. He was, he was able to wonder about something that he had never touched, but he couldn't imagine it. Interesting, eh? He could wonder about something he had never touched, but he couldn't imagine it. He could understand, he could comprehend and perceive an object in his mind through the information he had built up through his natural senses, predominantly his hands. And since he was born blind, he had no reference for anything. He had no reference material, no reference information to pull from. But his brain was able to take all that information just from touch and actually take all that information and he could imagine what what those things looked like. Pretty amazing, eh? And if you go back into like um, the ancient world, if you look at back in humanity's history, this this need to to symbolize, to to create images from the invisible, to imagine the unseen uh, as a way of expressing or comprehending um, belief is deep rooted. It's a deep rooted instinct, instinct in humanity. And so not long ago, I was watching a, a Netflix episode about the ancient, some ancient civilizations in, in South America. And they were building these, they built these amazing cities and, and civilizations completely around monuments or great pyramids and temples, places of worship and sacrifice. Everything was geared around these, these, these things that, that had a spiritual element and focus. And even in Scripture... You know, we often read that people have had encounters with God and then they would create a monument to that encounter. And um, it becomes a place, an image that would, that would accompany the story, that would accompany that, that encounter. And there's stories, stories in the Old Testament, like Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28. Jacob's traveling and he, and he, and he stops for the night. And he, and he takes a stone and he places it under his head as a pillow. You know he's a pretty tough guy when he does that. I mean, he uses a stone as a pillow. And that night, Jacob has this dream. And, and he sees a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And God speaks to Jacob and, and gives him promises. And then Jacob wakes up and, from his sleep and he declares, How awesome is this place? How awesome. And that's not like how, how we use the word awesome now, like it's cool. He was awestruck at his encounter. How, how awesome was this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. This is what he called that place. And then he takes that rock that he had slept on, and he, put, he places it on top of a pillar, and he pours oil on it. And he declares that this place be called Bethel, the house of God. And he commits himself to the promises that God gave him during this encounter. Um, and, and, you know, then he says that this pillar, 
This, this pillar that I've set up, this monument that I've set up shall be a sacred place to me. So whenever he's walking past that place later on, another time in his life, and he sees that pillar, it's a, it's a recollection. It's, 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 a, it's a recalling of his encounter to him. In Joshua 4, we read the story of um, the Ark of the Covenant and the priests and the, and the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River. And the, the priests were to go before the, the people some distance carrying the Ark. And, um, and as the feet of the priests carrying the Ark touched the water, the water stopped flowing some distance from them. As upstream, the water just stopped and it piled up like a wall. And as the priest stood in the middle of the Jordan River on dry ground, the people crossed over. And they were instructed that, that one, one representative from each of the 12 tribes was to come and collect a stone near where the, the priest was standing in the middle of the river in this, on this, this dry bed. And they, they took these 12 stones and they were to be a, a monument of this, of this encounter, a monument of this story. In Joshua 4, says this about these stones. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. See, a lot of the memorials we see in Scripture start as a personal experience, but they end up with tribal significance. They started quite often with an individual experience, but they ended up with tribal significance. And their descendants would come across these monuments, these piles of stones, you know, and they would testify of a story. They would, they would teach about who God is. And, and it was not only to recall the past, but they would also embrace the promise that was to be found in the future. That's the power of these monuments. There's this need to create a, a visual representation uh, that continues even today in the modern church. To, to create a, a visual representation of a spiritual reality. You know, we have some church traditions... <laughs> Don't tell him I put that up there. <laughs> so don't take a picture, Sue. <laughs> There's about 50 of these posted up on Liberty Connect. <laughs> yeah. He's recovering really well, isn't he? Good him. See, even, even a lot of these traditions that we find in, in different streams of the Christian faith are about creating an image that, that points to something spiritual. And I remember a number of years ago, I was talking to a couple who were, who were ministers at an Anglican church, and they're retired now, but I remember sitting and talking with them, and they were sharing with me the spiritual significance of some of their traditions, the, the things that they practiced and I was blown away. I was hearing this, and I was thinking, man, wow. I had a, a newfound respect for, for their practices because, to be honest, previously I really just had no value for them. 
But when they told me the meanings behind them, I was like, man, you guys have caught something that I have not got. And there was intentionality behind everything they did. From, from the outside looking in, it just seemed religious and boring. But for the devoted, it, it, was, it was part of their spiritual walk with God. It was part of the way they connected with Jesus and, and worshipped them and thanked them. And um, not long ago, I, um, I taught a series in KSOT on communion. And in my research, I came across material that explained um, it was a Greek Orthodox church, and they were explaining one of their, um, their communion service, their liturgy. And, and I was blown away when I read about this. You know, from someone else looking in, again, the process seems religious and, and ceremonial, but every step had purpose. And I love that everyone was part of this worship service. It wasn't just the priest up the front. It was everyone, young and old, everyone was invited to partake and be part of this because it was their worship time. It was their time with God where they were, they were coming with their whole being to worship him. It was spiritual. It was an encounter. And at the end of their, their liturgy, they, they, they would dismiss everyone with this amazing prayer. Now, just shut your eyes for a moment as I just read this prayer over you. Now, before I start, I am not dismissing you. Okay, I'm only on page one on my notes. So you're not being dismissed, but just sit back. Just think about, this is a, a Greek Orthodox church, and this is how they tell everyone to go for lunch. We have seen the true light. We have received the heavenly spirit. We have found the true faith by worshiping the Holy Trinity who has saved us. We have tasted salvation. We have renewed, sanctified, and set on fire our souls and are now ready to descend from our heavenly worship and venture back into our earthly existence here on earth. Wow. I think there's a little bit more going on there than symbolism and ceremony. That's powerful. Their liturgy for them was experiencing the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. In fact, this was such an anchor point of their week that the rest of the week was preparing for it. This was the climax of of their worship to come and, and encounter God, the kingdom. All the symbols, all the rituals and shadows just pointed to a greater reality. And for them, it was an invitation to experience God. If you came to their service, you were invited to encounter the kingdom. Okay, another thing, stained glass windows. Some of them are amazing, eh? This concept of staining glass is pretty ancient. Um, the Romans did it, um, Egyptians did it, and there's even evidence of like Arab architects using stained glass, colored glass back in the 8th century. But it wasn't, it wasn't until the Christian churches started to build and spread that stained glass windows became an established art form, and especially in, you know, the, during the 13th and the 14th century. Stained glass windows became the centerpiece for massive cathedrals. And these, these windows, they had educational purposes. 
You know, a lot of you are probably aware of that. And, and since the Middle Ages, you know, books were few. There weren't a lot of books around. And it was even harder to find someone who could read them. You know, and so these stained glass windows would depict the story, a visual representation of, of Scripture. Or teach theological beliefs. And you think about the way that having this light flood in through them and, and the colors, the rainbow colors that would have brought into the church. You know, it's illuminating the images and giving, giving the images. And when you're inside the church and the sun's coming through them, it's giving the images a sense of divinity, a spirituality behind these images. Except at nighttime. You know, the value of these windows, you know, even, even to today, you know, they're, they're, they're well-priced and valued. In fact, in Europe during World War II, they actually went around all the churches and they took the windows out and hid them and put them somewhere safe. And when the war was over, they went and put them back in the churches. Isn't that amazing? So some of you have probably gone and visited some of these old churches all through Europe and and stuff. I haven't. I've only seen pictures, and I guess the oldest churches that are in New Zealand, I've seen some of them. But some of even the churches we have in New Zealand, even though they're you know they're under two hundred years old, I guess. Um, I don't know how how long, old exactly. Yeah, but um, you know even those those have amazing windows in them that tell amazing stories. They tell stories and they remind us of our faith, of who God is. And even creation tells us the story about God. In Romans 1.20, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen. His invisible attributes, the, the invisible God has become evident in creation, being understood through what has been made. See, the context of this verse in Romans is talking about people who have not put their trust in God. Uh, A God who's revealed, a God who is evident in his own creation. And we're called to acknowledge and we're called to walk righteously with him. But instead, it goes on in verse 23, they've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And it goes on to say that because they rejected or they would not acknowledge God, he hands them over to their desires, the desire of their heart, and unrighteousness becomes their life. And, and, they, and they find themselves, these humans that have not acknowledged God, find themselves living a life that is, that is not as they've been designed by the Father to live. And what's really interesting here is this language that Paul's using uh, in Romans has an undertone of the fall of Adam and Eve. You can sort of see that underneath. You know, the fall led to humanity, led humanity down a path of, of leaning into our own understanding, of, of not acknowledging God, of, uh, and, and exalting in many cases the worship of the created rather than the worship of the creator. And just like those ancient cultures we were just talking about momentarily, you know, um, they, their focus was on the created and not the creator. 
They worshipped the creation over the creator. The creator who had made himself evident in creation. Proverbs um, 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see, the, the glory, the glory of the, the created is supposed to reveal the glory of the creator. Just like it says that he is evident in creation, the invisible God is evident in creation, and we as humans are created, and we are meant to reveal the creator. We are meant to reveal the creator. Because this is what it says about man. Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In his image. Mago Day, in his image. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. It's really interesting it says image and likeness here. And um, this is what you call a Hebrew parallelism. And even though those two words could have different meanings, they're actually connected. And what we, see, we see sort of Hebrew parallelism, this sort of language more in Psalms and Proverbs, because it's, it's a, the Hebrew form of how they write their poetry. But it's really useful when you see it in other places in Scripture, when you see this Hebrew parallelism, um, because what it does is it points you to looking, understanding the meaning by looking at the greater text. When you see it, you have to look at the greater text, and then you get the comprehension of understanding what it means. And so we read in Genesis that God made, and then later, later on it says that God looked at what he had made, and he said that it was good. We have God made, and then he looked at what he had made, and he said it was good. And the content between these two, these, these points show us a few things about what it means to be made in his image. And so I actually stole these four points from um, Braxy Carvey just to give him credit. We're made to reproduce. We're made to rule. We're created to reveal. We're created to, to relate. And so reproduce talks about um, being, we're, we're created to be co-creators with God. We create more image bearers of God. Amen? We, 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 we co-create with God and we reproduce who we are on the earth. And we rule. We have, we have a significant position of influence in creation. Humanity has a significant influence in creation. But see, our influence of rule and authority 
Because that's what we have. We have been given an influence of rule and authority is to serve and care for creation. Stewardship of creation. Looking after our environment as being part of being an image of God. We're called to be caretakers, and that's, that's how we rule. We use our strength, we use our authority to care and tend and take care of this creation that we've been put in charge of. And we get to reveal, this is who we are. We're made in the image of God and we become revealers. God's character to each other. We reveal God's character to each other. As you're living in your identity, as you live in love, you're revealing the character of God to another person. You know, we live our lives from a place of love and care for each other. We're revealing to each other the character of God. That's a great thought, hey? Next time you're sitting down having coffee with someone, right in that moment, you're designed to reveal the character of God to that person and then back to you. As he is, so are we to be. Doing life with people, doing life with people is actually how we grow in God, how we grow closer to him. It's because we need people around us to reveal him. And the more we're revealing him and practicing him, the more we're growing in who we are in him. And we're created to relate. Made by relation, made by relationship for relationship. Made by relationship for relationship. God said, let us make man in our image. Who knows that there was, a, there was, a, um, there was three of them in this plan. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were, they were, you know, you were their secret plan. Let us make man in our image. You, we, the thought of humanity was birthed out of relationship. And so we were born out of relationship to be in relationship. And we see that also, you know, God make, forms Adam out of the ground and he declares that he's good, but then he says that there's something not quite right here. He needs a woman. We're designed for relationship. <laughs> you know, it'd be cool to go a little bit further in some of those things, but um, maybe we'll do a KSOT series on it. That'd be cool. N.T. Wright calls, pretty much calls these four things that we're, we're in the, the, the image of the God. Being made in the image of God looks like that we're reproduced, that we rule, we reveal, and we relate. And the way N.T. Wright puts language to this is he says, these are genuine human tasks of genuine human beings as part of the Creator's purpose, um, as part of the Creator's purpose for his world. When we're doing these things, we're just being human. When we're relating to each other, when we're reproducing, when we're connecting with each other, when we're, 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 when we're revealing God, we're just actually being human. All humans are created to be image bearers. All humans. And N.T. Wright uses like this analogy of an angled mirror. And he shares the story that when he was a, um, a young boy, he was really sick. And his mother placed a mirror by his door, 
And it was angled in such a way that he, from his bed he was able to see what the family was doing. But in turn, also, the family was able to look back and they were able to see him. See, the angle of the mirror allows you to see in both directions. And so Wright continues to say that, he says, it seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in his world so that God can reflect his love and care and stewardship of the world through humans and so that the rest of the world can praise the creator through humans. Being being image bearers, directly relates to our vocation as a royal priesthood. You know, and, and I love the idea that, that our praise and our worship that, that we, we participate in and the way we live our lives is as, a, as a representation of creation, presenting it before God. It's our, it's our priestly duty. If you think about our position in all of creation, it's amazing it's a powerful thought to think about that all humans are made in the image of God. All humans. James, when he's writing um, about controlling our tongue, says that with our tongue, this is in James 3.9, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Think about that. With the tongue that we have, we praise and worship God. And yet for some reason, we also use that same tongue to curse men who have been made in the image of God. See, James is reminding us of our human design, that, that how can we offer up praise and worship to our creator and yet speak poorly of his creation? How can we offer up praise and worship to the creator but yet at the same time speak poorly of his creation? See, our ability to bear the image of the one we're created to, to bear is completely determined by where we, we, we're placed. Just like that mirror, a change in placement changes the whole picture. Now, some humans have their, their mirror sort of going in the wrong direction and they're not presenting God. But we have Jesus that helps us align. Amen? If you remember earlier, we talked about monuments of stone. And if you start to read 1 Peter chapter 2, it tells us about Jesus, the living stone. And Jesus is not only the living stone, he's also the chief corner stone. So in masonry, and you guys all probably know this, the, the cornerstone is so crucial. The cornerstone is so crucial because every other stone that is laid out after that is set in reference to that first stone. And it, and it, and it determines the entire structure. First Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Jesus is the, the living stone that defines the, the living monument that is being built to glorify God that we're part of. This is what it means for us to be fully human, that we are image bearers that glorify God. We're image bearers that glorify him. 
a man named um, Hans Rundmacher, a guy called Hans, he made, this, he made this statement once. Jesus didn't come to make us Christians. Jesus came to make us fully human. That's a great thought, eh? He didn't come to make you a Christian. See, the book of Acts 11, verse 26, tells us that it was in Antioch that believers were first called Christians. And some even say that it was originally meant as an insult. But before then, believers were simply referred to as people of the way. They were people of the way. And Jesus himself said that he is the way and the truth. And we're people of the way. Other people call us Christians but we're people of the way. We are people of the way of Jesus. And in Christ, we've been realigned back into our original vocation, into our original calling, the the purpose and the definition that God gave us um, as humans from the very beginning, that we would reveal him, that we would bear his image. 1 Peter chapter 2 continues in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that you may proclaim him. Wow. That's a good thought, eh? To to be fully human is to be a, a royal priest an image bearer of our creator in the midst of creation, going about doing human tasks. It's kind of redefine a human task, isn't it? You know, there's a lot more we can explore on this, and, and I would encourage you, look up Pastor Trent's message on being a royal priesthood. I think he did it last year. You know, go and, go and listen to that again. Take some time to read Genesis 1. Read Genesis 1. Meditate on the truth of being made in his image. Just think about that. Think, I am made in his image. I'm an image bearer. And Christ has come and he's realigned me as a mirror so that I can reveal him in the earth. And then he's given me these basic human tasks to do. Reproduce. Reveal. What are the other two were? Oh, people listening, great. I couldn't actually remember what they were. I just want to encourage you. I don't want to over go into this too deep, but I want to encourage you, meditate on that. You're, you're made in his image. You're made in his image, and you've got genuine human tasks to do. You're fully human. This, this living monument right now is being, being built. Amen? Humanity is still discovering what it means to be fully human. We're still discovering what it means to be fully human. And our job is to make sure that we keep our mirror aligned. To be faithful image bearers of the creator. And that's why I love that verse from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
And do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Who knows if you're acknowledging him, your mirror is in the right direction. And he will make your paths straight. You'll see clearly the task that, that you as fully human are to perform on the earth. So good. And as we acknowledge who he is for us, as we allow Jesus to be the cornerstone of, um, allow Jesus to be the cornerstone of our lives, he set the direction and the definition of who we really are. Sorry, I had a little bit more than I thought. <laughs> it's only my second day. <laughs> First Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. See, Peter is telling us that the culture of this world is not the culture we've been created for. The culture that's enslaved the world is not the culture that we've been created for, nor is it the culture of his kingdom. And so as we walk in the kingdom of heaven, the culture of heaven, we're like aliens. We're like, we're like foreigners. But as we walk with God in the midst of this foreign culture, being in the world and not of it, bearing the image of God, being priests and ministers of reconciliation, that there's a hope that in the day of visitation, the people that we interact with in the world acknowledge him. And when they acknowledge him, what have they done? Their mirrors have been turned and they become image bearers themselves and they bring glory to God. You know, humanity has a really important role in creation. And as believers in Christ, we're not called to be bearers of religion. We're not bearers of religion. We are image bearers of a loving father, the creator. A father restoring humanity to its fullness through Jesus. I think it's time to have a renewed view of humanity. And let's see our creator be glorified. So if, if you're human today... <laughs> if you're human, stand up. Yeah. You were created as an amazing, beautiful image bearer. Think of the one. Think of the image of the one that you bear, the creator, the father. What an honor we have in the role of creation, amen? What an honor to be made in his image and then to be given the task of revealing him in creation. That's for all of us. Every human has this invitation, has this opportunity. Father, we just ask that you would give us a fresh revelation of how we see humanity and 
how we see ourselves as, as image bearers of your glory into the earth. That as we, as we acknowledge you, as we, as we make sure that we're keeping our alignment on you, we shine into the world a blessing. We shine into the, we shine into the world the Father's heart. And we draw men and women to your heart. And they get to have an encounter with Jesus. And they get to be set free from the bondage of the culture of the world and come into the kingdom. And then they too begin to be image bearers of the glory of God. And we can rejoice in being fully 